Coming to you from the Outer Mission, this is Monkey Block, a storytelling podcast focused on San Francisco's golden past, 1849 through 1906. I'm your host, Girlina. The stories are closely based on newspapers of the time, historical books, and journals. Disclaimer, I do my best to research and share the real stories, extracting legends or calling them out. Now, let's go back in time. Prior to doing research for my podcast, I had interpreted the small number of Yerba Buena inhabitants to mean very little was occurring in Yerba Buena. I've read Yerba Buena was a sleepy little ramshackle town with nothing to see or offer. That's not true, and I know that now. As early as 1817, Yerba Buena Cove was increasingly being visited by incoming ships. In 1836, only two families, the Richardsons and the Leases, had a permanent residence in the Pueblo de Yerba Buena, which isn't representative of the growing commerce from the hide and tallow trade. But were they really the first founders of Yerba Buena? We know history doesn't properly credit the Ohlone Indians as the original founders of Yerba Buena. But there's also another group missing from Yerba Buena's early history. I'll let your mind wander for a moment to see if you can guess who I might be talking about. Today's episode is based on what was just meant to be one paragraph as I continued the history of Yerba Buena and also the portion of the seawall from the last episode. However, I ran into a really interesting tale in Yerba Buena's early history. This is about a person whose story is worth telling. For reasons, some history just never gets told. There's an expression. He who tells history decides which history gets told. Here we go. The third map of Yerba Buena, J.N. Bauman. California Historical Society Quarterly, 1947. Captain William Richardson from the last episode was the one who drew the first map of Yerba Buena in 1835. This was the first survey of Yerba Buena, but this map was lost somewhere in time. Richardson's second map was drawn just after the first one in October of the same year. And the third map of Yerba Buena, also drawn by Captain William Richardson, is believed to be from 1835 to 1839. No one knows the exact date. This map becomes the reason for today's episode. It's a sparse map with just a few lines and leaves out really obvious details that the first and second map had, like even the name of the first street of Yerba Buena. Now, it was Richardson who founded Yerba Buena and named the first street. So he didn't leave it off this third map because he didn't know it. So what was the purpose of the map? The third map was part of several documents that actually Jacob Primer Lease, the second inhabitant, left to Edwin Grabhorn. While we don't know the reason for this third map, there is evidence suggesting its purpose. 
The map was attached to a petition dated May 12, 1839. But the map was very likely created prior to that. Honestly, not much changed in Yerba Buena between 1835 and 1839. The map shows Casa de Richardson, the Solar de Lis y Vallejo, the Laguna Salada, and one more item. I'll give quick context to these other items before getting to the payoff, dear listener. The Solar, that's a lot of land, was for the Lis y Vallejo, that's Salvador Vallejo, Mariano's brother, and it depicts where Lis and Vallejo want to create the first wharf at the original Embarcadero, which is at current-day Broadway and Battery. And that makes a lot of sense, because Lise already has a mercantile store very close by. The Laguna Salada is a salt lagoon, and it's on Jackson and Montgomery. Now, the lagoon appears on several early maps of San Francisco, and this Laguna Salada is actually tied to the portion of the seawall that I mentioned in my last episode. So hold on to that for my next episode. And now the payoff. The third map of Yerba Buena depicts Playa de Juana Briones, located at North Beach, back when the area was still a beach. This was just meant to be one paragraph. Let's see if you agree that this next part is worthy of an entire episode. Juana Briones is born near Santa Cruz in 1802. She's the daughter of a retired soldier and the twin who at birth is not expected to live. So she is immediately baptized by a soldier. But against all odds, she lives. Her family's California history begins in 1776 with her maternal grandparents as part of the De Anza expedition. Next to being indigenous, that's as far back as it goes for being from California. And speaking of indigenous, Juana's birthplace just outside of Santa Cruz was predominantly indigenous. And it's there, through her mother and her interactions with the Ohlone Indians, Juana and her older sister, not her twin, learned the art of healing as curanderas. Curandera translates to person who heals. Being a curandero is more than just being an herbalist. Curanderismo is Mexican shamanism. So there is an intuitive ability associated with the use of herbal medicine to be considered a curandero or curandera female. Juana is illiterate and she is of Afro-Latino descent from her mother's side. So I guess that means her father was Spanish. Juana is 10 years old when her mother dies. In 1817, just as the hide and tallow trade is starting, her father moves the family to the San Francisco Presidio, where Juana's older sister, Maria Guadalupe Briones Miramantes, and her husband live on their already established farm at a location called El Pelon Spring. And it makes sense to move the family to where a maternal figure can help the widower with his kids. El Pelon Spring is a great location for its biodiversity, which is why the colonists build their road and their homes between two once-existing Yalamu Ohlone villages. And speaking of the Ohlone, 
El Palón Spring is where prisoners of war, mostly runaway mission Indians, were used as slave labor. I don't know if the Briones and the Miramontes farm their own land, use slave labor, or both. Point of interest, if Miramontes sounds familiar from Half Moon Bay, that's because these are the same Miramontes who moved from the San Francisco Presidio to Half Moon Bay in 1841. Maria Guadalupe becomes the matriarch of Spanish Town, which is the early Mexican community in Half Moon Bay, where they established the San Benito Ranch. Now, there is actually a Yerba Buena reason I am telling you this story, so stay with me. In 1820, Juana marries Apolinario Miranda, a cavalryman stationed at the San Francisco Presidio. They marry at the Mission Dolores and build their own house and farm right there in El Balon Spring, which they call their little area Ojo de Agua de Figueroa, near current-day Green and Lion Streets. Their ranch is mostly for dairy production. Their Ojo de Agua lot appears on a really cool diseño, and a diseño is a Mexican map specifically for land grants. Considering they had cows, I wonder why they didn't venture into the hide and tallow trade. I can only assume they found their niche in dairy. Juana gives birth to 11 children, four of which die. In 1835, Juana and her husband adopt an orphaned Indian girl who has lifelong health issues. In reading Native Californians at the Presidio of San Francisco, analysis of lithic specimens from El Palón Spring, it was common for colonial families to adopt orphaned Native children. Juana was kind-hearted and a gifted nurturer, so as a curandera, it makes sense she bonded with this sick young girl and adopted her. The story is that her attic was converted into a sanctuary for deserting sailors. I am aware of one first-hand account regarding this very topic. Charles Brown, one of the four deserting sailors, wrote, An old lady named Juana Briones, residing in the Presidio, understanding that myself, Efren P. Farewell, Gregorio Escalante, a Manila man, and an Indian named Elijah, a native of the vicinity of New London, wanted to run. She stowed us away in the loft of her house, and from there she moved Farewell and me to the bushes on Black Point. Then she sent for her brother, Felipe Briones, from Panol, who came and carried us over there. There I remained until 1832. While Juana had a heart of gold and helped Others escaped terrible living conditions and working conditions. Things weren't harmonious at the Briones and Miranda house. In 1836, with the help of a local bishop and also the alcalde, Francisco Guerrero, Juana petitioned to legally separate from her alcoholic and abusive husband. She was illiterate, so she signed the letter to Bishop Diego of Santa Barbara using a cross. The letter to the bishop captured her husband's drunkenness, scandalous activities, and the unsavory company he keeps, his failure to provide for her and her children, the poor example his activities set before the children, the unpaternal actions towards family members, made her forced by her own labors 
to provide for the home. Juana's attempt for a legal separation is denied. Either before or after Juana's failed request for a separation, Juana moves to Loma Alta, just next to North Beach, at the bottom of Telegraph Hill, where she builds a temporary residence. The reason she said she was moving was to be closer to her new neighbors, which is probably the most diplomatic of her reasons, I'm sure. Loma Alta was just inside William Richardson's surveyed limits of Yerba Buena. I'm reading Juana built her temporary home at some point between 1835 and 1838. Most realistically, it was in 1836 or later. Now, this is speculation on my part. Juana must have been putting a plan into place for her future without her husband. Recall, her petition for legal separation was denied, so this was just a physical separation. Actually, it's Captain Richardson who helped Juana build her temporary house before she was able to build her permanent adobe and added a ranch there in Loma Alta. Obviously, before drawing the third map, whenever that was. Now recall, Playa de Juana Briones. Her adobe and rancho were located on lots 454, 455, 470, and 471, which is present-day Powell between Filbert and Greenwich. Lot numbers were used as addresses um, back in Yerba Buena's early days. One corner of her property would have touched the current-day church, which is St. Peter's and Paul in the current-day Washington Square, but back then it was just called Public Square on maps. These were Juana's lots. Her husband's name did not appear on the paperwork. This, to me, is where the story gets interesting. Since Mexican law allowed women to obtain property in their own name, even while married, that's just what Juana did. And we can only assume she had her reasons. I'd call her a pretty clever and brave woman for her time. And it's probably Juana's ties to the Presidio and Richardson's wife being the lovely daughter of the Presidio's Comandante, was the link to Richardson helping Juana and her children move away from her abusive husband. But that's speculation on my part. If Juana's temporary house was built in 1836 or 1837, that makes Juana the second or third inhabitant in Yerba Buena before or just after Jacob Primer lease, and that's based on the dates of legal paperwork. Now, this is splitting hairs, but it is an important distinction to make. Richardson writes that Jacob Primer lease is the second settler of Yerba Buena, and a settler means someone who does not live there but moves there, and in this case, a foreigner who moves to Yerba Buena. Juana is a resident and not a settler. So perhaps this is why Juana's residence isn't captured in history? Richardson himself was the one who drew the first, second, and third maps of Yerba Buena, which includes Loma Alta, and also who helps build her temporary home in Loma Alta. So 
he knows very well that she lives in Yerba Buena. But he chooses not to acknowledge her as a resident. Only lease. And that's because he's a settler, not a local. Or maybe I'm being naive and her lack of acknowledgement in Yerba Buena is lost because of some other factors. The true historical value of this third map is that it questions captured history of Jacob Primer Lease being the second inhabitant of Yerba Buena. Juana's story isn't readily a part of Yerba Buena's early history. I had to really dig to pull her storyline together. Between 1836 and 1837, Juana lived in both the temporary Yerba Buena house as well as the house in El Palón Spring until her permanent adobe in Yerba Buena was built, which is when Juana and her children permanently left the Ojo de Agua farm for Yerba Buena. Mexican law seldomly granted women separations when they petitioned for one, and Juana knew that firsthand. And even fewer women were granted divorces. A divorce was something that the man had to initiate. So women would run away and desert the marriage, hoping their husbands wouldn't find them and press charges for deserting the marriage. And that's clearly not what Juana did if she moved just a mile or two away from her husband. For Juana to have moved, even temporarily, away from her husband in that time would have required a comandante or an alcalde to give written or verbal permission for her to leave her husband in the Ojo de Agua farm. I I give Juana a lot of credit for not giving up. I can't imagine the danger she put herself in after her petition for a legal separation was denied. Despite Juana's creating a residence away from her husband at some time between 1836 through 1838, she remained with him on some level. They baptized their youngest child in 1841 at Mission Dolores. Also in 1841, there's a filed record in Monterey of her husband being formally reprimanded by the Presidio Comandante for domestic abuse. These are complicated situations today, and even more so back then. Between 1842 and 1844, and possibly 1846, there were five additional reported incidences of domestic abuse at the El Palón Spring home. She did remain with him in some way. In Loma Alta, Juana and her children continue on with their successful rancho that provides eggs, milk, beef, goats, fruits, and vegetables to the incoming ships as part of the hide-and-tallow trade, as well as to the locals. Her new adobe also serves as a boarding house. Without formal medical training, Juana is known in Yerba Buena as a talented midwife and nurse. She can treat smallpox, scurvy, deliver babies, and set broken jaws. <laughs> her abilities as a curandera are also well-known and sought after, in addition to her dairy and produce. Her yerba buena tea, made with the wild yerba buena plant, was legendary. And legendary in that it has been said Pueblo de Yerba Buena was named after her tea. 
which I like the story, but I doubt that. Juana's dairy and farm are destinations. Her captured history is mostly via firsthand accounts from the incoming ships. They knew that when you landed in Yerba Buena, you go to Juana to supply yourself with milk, food, and if needed, her healing abilities. After all, she could set broken jaws. There are several of these early Yerba Buena accounts which mention Widow Briones, the wealthy older woman who sells dairy and produce. In 1846, American soldiers killed some of her cattle at the El Polon Spring Rancho, so she is forced to move them somewhere else. I don't know if that was her Loma Alta Rancho in Yerba Buena. I will speculate and say Juana must have read the tea leaves, saw that the times and the face of the area was changing, and that if she didn't sell her land, Manifest Destiny would take it away from her. Things with her husband remain in flux. In her deposition on March 5, 1846, Juana states, He is no longer afraid of the authorities because they make allowances for everything he does. However, I'm the one suffering because of all of this. I can no longer leave my house to run errands without him acting badly. I fear one day he may kill me or some other tragedy will befall my family. Juana, being the planner that she is, has an ace up her sleeve. In 1844, Juana had purchased land in Palo Alto in Santa Clara County. In late 1846, she moves her family to Palo Alto, where she purchased a 4,400-acre ranch for $300 from two Ohlone Indians. And this was one of the four Indian families in Alta, California, who actually were granted land after the mission secularization. There's no mention of the husband on Juana's deeds and legal paperwork after 1846, so I have to assume she was granted her legal separation, and her husband left the area. Juana maintained the cattle ranch in El Palon Spring, now solely in her name, even after taking permanent residence in Yerba Buena with the other rancho. Juana's time in Yerba Buena ends in 1846. She said Yerba Buena was getting too crowded for her liking. Eventually, Juana sells three of her Yerba Buena lots to her son-in-law and eventually breaks the last lot into two and sells them to two separate people. Juana never remarries. Her successful business continues at her Palo Alto ranch, but for the sake of my episode, Juana's story ends here. Out of context, Juana's story might not jump out at you, but in context, Juana, even from birth, was a survivor who, despite the odds, kept going. She took chances most women didn't take, both in marriage and in business, in a culture and a religion, and at a time when doing these things would have left her physically, financially, and socially vulnerable for going against the expectations of a woman, a wife, and a mother. The cherry on top here, though, is that Juana, all along, had the business sense to ensure all of her lots were properly documented and that the diseños, the Mexican land grant maps, 
were updated with legal oversight by her hired lawyers to ensure her land was properly documented for the boundaries and secured in her name. Said another way, Juana was able to keep all of her land in the American takeover of California as part of Manifest Destiny. Not a lot of Californios preemptively took these legal precautions to secure their land the way she did. So this additionally makes Juana stand out amongst the majority of land-owning Californios. Juana may have been illiterate, but she knew how to protect herself legally and financially and manage a business, and I find this aspect of her life incredible. Richardson's first house and Lisa's first mercantile store were not lost with time, but the first rancho in Yerba Buena, well, that got lost in time. There are no known surviving diaries or letters from Juana. She was illiterate. There are no confirmed photos of her either. We have several firsthand accounts from people who regularly bought from her or sought her medical expertise. We also have legal papers, news articles, maps, and deeds for posterity. Juana lived in California under three flags, Spain, Mexico, and the United States. She was a third-generation Californiana who petitioned for and was eventually granted a separation from her abusive husband. She is one of the first female landowners in California, and she is the first female landowner in Yerba Buena. She's one of the first three inhabitants of Yerba Buena. She used her maternal nature to cure people and save deserting sailors that were escaping abuse. She was a well-known and respected merchant and savvy businesswoman. I see her as a role model to single mothers and aspiring businesswomen. Juana died in 1889 of old age at approximately 93 years old, and she's buried in the Holy Cross Cemetery in Menlo Park. But Juana's Yerba Buena legacy continues. In 1989, San Francisco had zero plaques for women. Zero. After a very public and political struggle, which brought in the Bay Area Network of Latinas and the San Francisco Historical Society, in 1997, San Francisco placed its first plaque commemorating a Latina in Juana Briones' honor, and that's located in Washington Square. If you sit on the bench with her plaque, you are facing the church, which more or less was where her adobe and rancho once stood. I don't know why Juana's story has been mostly lost in time and just reduced to a point of reference on the third map of Yerba Buena and mentions here and there of being a rich widow that you buy milk from. I find her story another fascinating layer to Yerba Buena. But we all know he who tells history decides which history gets told. This is the story of the founding mother of Yerba Buena and a beautiful dreamer. Doña Juana Priones, no te hemos olvidado. We have not forgotten you. You can find the transcript with cited sources to today's episode at monkeyblocksf.buzzsprout.com. Thank you for listening. This is Monkey Block. 
retelling forgotten stories from San Francisco's golden past. (laughs) ¶¶ 